in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Esau has gone away. Esau has taken possession of what God has given him for this earthly life. Esau's doing well. As we read later on in this chapter, the sons of Ishmael are doing well. The Ishmaelites and the Midianites, they're prosperous traders, traders, and they seem to be doing well. But Jacob is in the land of his father's sojournings, an exile in the world, but not of it, waiting by faith for his inheritance. And one of the most significant things that he has so far in this land of promise is a place to be buried, a graveyard. That's Jacob as we come to that final verse of the the ninth Toledot. And now we begin the 10th here in chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Generations in Hebrew, Toledot, there are 10 sections in Hebrews. Uh, sorry, there are 10 sections in Genesis. And this is the last one from chapter 37 right through to chapter 50. And the generations of the Toledot of Jacob is the consequences, what falls out from his life, what are the consequences, what is born out of Jacob's life. And so it concentrates now on his children. And you see the Lord working. He's working as he's made a covenant with Abraham and given him one child of the promise and another child of the flesh, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael falls away. Then in the next generation, of patriarchs to whom God promised the land and a multitude of descendants. In the next generation, he gives Isaac two children that are biological, and one of them falls away, and one is a child of the promise. The other is a child of the flesh. Then Jacob, the third generation of those who received the, the promise of the land and a great nation, Jacob turns from one into 12. And as we begin this last Toledo, this last section, we wonder what's going to happen. In the last generations, there was only one who continued faithful to that holy line. What's going to happen with these 12? And we see in these next chapters that, in fact, despite great sin and great unworthiness on the part of the 12, God transforms the 12 into the 70. And in Exodus, the next chapter, the next book in the scriptures, he transforms the 70 into a great nation. So God keeps doing his work and he keeps fulfilling his promises. But it is a long, an arduous, a painful process. It is the way of the cross. It is through much suffering that God brings about his kingdom through setbacks, through existential threats, and through much sin and unworthiness on the part of the promised and chosen people. And so as we begin this last tolerant, this last section, chapter 37, verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, Joseph, and we're tempted to think that the last section is mainly about Joseph because a lot of stuff that happens in these next chapters centers on 
Joseph, and he certainly is a type, a figure who points to, as a shadow, he points to the coming Christ. But there's more happening in these chapters, and as we go through them in the next sermons on Genesis, keep an eye not just on Joseph, but keep an eye on Judah. See what's happening there. Now, there's this Reuben, Simeon, Levi, the first three from Leah, they've all been disqualified. Reuben, because he went into his father's wife, Bilhah, Simeon and Levi, because they, they abused the holy sign of the covenant and violently massacred an entire city. So the next one in line is Judah. He's the one that's chosen to carry on the holy line of the Christ, that line that begins in Genesis 3, verse 15, and comes, draws right through the Old Testament to the birth of our Lord Jesus. Judah's the chosen one, and he carries within himself the coming Christ. In his body, from his flesh, will come our Savior. So keep an eye on Judah and see what God does with him over the course of these last chapters in the book of Genesis. So Joseph here in our text is 17 years old. That means that we're about 10 years after they left Padan Aram. He's a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, why does the Holy Spirit call our attention to that? Well, he's not hanging around with the sons of Leah. I wonder why. The sons of Leah all their life have seen dad disrespect mom and choose the other woman. They don't like Rachel or her family. And so, even though he is a son of a, a, a wife of the first rank, not one of the servants, Joseph has to hang around with the servant's children because the kids of Leah don't want to be near him. But even with these children of Bilhah and Zilpah, there's not a good relationship, there's not a good dynamic. He brought a bad report of them to their father. Joseph is in an awkward situation. He's a, he's a son of the second wife. He's resented by the sons of the first wife, and he's resented by the sons of the other wives as well. Plus, he's a tattletale, and there's no kid on this earth or in history that likes a tattletale. And so people really don't like Joseph. Except for, verse 3, Jacob. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Now, in a normal, healthy family, if the little kid, the little one, although we complain about it, don't we? But if the little one gets a little bit spoiled by mom and dad because they're the child of the old age, we, we can handle that if it's not too much. We can understand that, but this isn't a normal family. This isn't a healthy family. This is a family which has lived all of its life in conflict, in dysfunction. It is an unnatural number of wives that Jacob has. It doesn't, it's not the way things are supposed to be, and it brings with it, as, as all sin does, as all things that are against nature do, it brings with it pain. It brings with it favoritism. You can't avoid it. It brings with it the neglect of Leah and her children, and they feel it. Jacob seems blithely unaware of what his decisions are causing, the grief that they're causing. He gives Joseph a robe of many colors. Now, we've all, many of us have looked at the children's 
Bible when we were growing up and perhaps we saw the picture of the robe of many colors and maybe it was a robe of many colors, but this, the word used here for robe of many colors is a word which only happens here and it happens later on in Scripture in 2 Samuel 13 when Tamar is wearing a robe which is described with the same Hebrew word. In 2 Samuel 13, if you look it up, it's translated a little differently. It's translated as a robe with long sleeves. What we know about it is this, that it was a robe which communicated that the bearer, the person wearing it, the wearer, was special. It gave them status and rank. Tamar is a daughter of the king. She wears this kind of robe. So it's a, it's a richly ornamented robe which says this person has a lot of status and importance. And of course, what Jacob's doing here is he's wishing for life to be the way that he wanted it to be. He wanted Rachel, and because he wanted Rachel, he wants Rachel's oldest son to be the child of the promise. In God's providence, that didn't happen. And Jacob, as we so often do, is butting heads with God's providence. He's insisting on, no, 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 God, you, you work things out this way, but I wanted it the other way, and I'm going to live as though it's the other way. Now, we've all done it, and we all know that it doesn't work. It hurts when we try to, again, try to go against and ignore the providence of God. So what J Jacob's doing here is struggling, wrestling with the providence, providence of God. And he, of all people, should know that he's going to lose because it's happened before. So he has this royal robe. He's number 11 in the list of children. He's way down the list, but Jacob wants him to be the first. And so you can imagine what this does. Well, you don't have to imagine that the Holy Spirit tells us, verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. It was already bad. Now it gets worse. The favoritism, passing over the other 10 sons, it's wrong, and it's injustice. Now, with Isaac... Jacob and Esau, God had specifically said, he had prophesied and said, the older shall serve the younger. God had said it. And then in that case, Isaac ignored it and favored his firstborn. Here, God has not said it. Later on, we'll see that it actually does turn out that God has a special place for Joseph. And he does get actually the double portion later on. But Jacob has no way of knowing it. And what he's doing is not in accordance with the revelation that he has from God. And so the brothers could not speak peacefully to him. The word peacefully here is the word shalom. They could not speak to him in shalom. They could not speak in a way which sought his welfare or his well-being. So it's bad, but now it gets worse because now Joseph starts dreaming. Joseph had a dream and he told his brothers, verse 5, and they hated him even more. Why? Well, because now God is saying something. You see, we, we are, <clears throat> are not used to seeing dreams and visions as revelatory because they're not anymore. The, the revelation of God has come to its fullness in the, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, which is the record of the prophets and the apostles and what they have received from the Holy Spirit. We have the 
the full and complete revelation of God until we see him face to face. But back then, they didn't have the scriptures, and God spoke through dreams and visions. And Joseph is the one chosen. Now, because we have 12 sons, you see God distributing different gifts on different children. Joseph gets the prophetic uh, role or the prophetic office that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all three, prophet, priest, and king, but they're now distributed. Joseph gets the prophetic, later on Judah gets the kingly, and Levi will get the, the priestly. God is distributing these roles and these offices. And the dream is a revelation from God. It's as if we're reading something right in the scriptures. This is how God spoke to his people in the old dispensation. Now, they hated him, first of all, because of dad favoritizing him. Now, look at verse 5, and look at verse 8. Now they hate him because of God and because of the word of God, because of what God is saying. It is offensive to them. It's not what they want to hear, and they hate him even more. Then in verse 9, he has another dream. And this is important. If you just flip the page in your Bible to, or maybe a couple of pages, to 41 verse 42, when Pharaoh was dreaming, and in, in 41 verse 32, correction, 41 verse 32, Joseph tells Pharaoh the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So it's God's will and it's going to happen soon. That's what it means when the dream doubles. That's what we have here in our text. There's a double dream. That means God has ordained it and it's going to happen soon. The first dream is a dream of that's on the earth with the sheaves bowing down. The second dream has to do with the heavens. And so there's something here. There's something of cosmic significance. It has to do not just with Joseph and, and with Jacob and the 12. It has to do with the history of the world and it has to do with the history of the universe and the eternal kingdom of God. This is not just a little thing. This is a massive thing that God is revealing. And so Joseph tells it, not just to his brothers this time, but also to his father. God has reinforced the dream. It's a certainty. So he tells dad. There's an awkward thing here is that the second dream doesn't just show the unexpected submission of the older brothers to the younger but it shows something even more unnatural, which is the submission of dad and mom to one of the kids. And that goes against the whole order of creation. That makes Jacob very uncomfortable. It's, it's the revelation of God, but he's not comfortable hearing that. What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So Jacob tells him off, but at the same time, Jacob, he's not quite sure what's happening here. His father, verse 11, kept the saying in mind. It reminds us of Mary later on in the New Testament when she looks at what's happening with her son and she hears the prophecies and she doesn't quite understand them, but she, she, she stores these things up in her heart. She reflects on them. That's what Jacob is doing here. He knows something's going on. What should he have done as the prophet, priest, and king of the household? What should he have done as the patriarch? He should have said, my sons, listen, I know you don't get along, and I know you're already peeved off that Joseph has a special place in my heart, 
But this is the Word of God. And you and me, we all have to bow before the Word of God. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say God reveals it, so we must submit. He's afraid of his sons. You remember that he was afraid of his sons at Shechem. He's afraid of them here as well. These guys are, are jealous. They're angry. They can be violent. And Jacob is not quite sure that he can control his own children. And so he tries to keep them happy by telling Joseph off for hearing the word of God revealed to him in a certain way in two dreams. And so his brothers were jealous, verse 11. So we have throughout the first 11 verses of this chapter, we have that they, they hate him, they hate him, they hate him, and they're jealous of him. This is not looking good. This is going to lead to violence, and it does. It doesn't end well because this, this is just a, a pressure cooker waiting to explode here, and it does explode as we move into the second part of the chapter in verse 12. They're off to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Now, they're down here in Hebron, or in Hebron. They're going to go by Jerusalem and then up to, to Shechem, which is north of there. And that was where they had destroyed, of course, the entire city and killed the entire population, the, the male population of the city. And it appears that they still have some kind of a connection. Of course, Jacob had bought some land there, and they know the area, so they're, they're going up there with the sheep to pasture them. That's what they do. They pasture sheep, and it's good sheep-grazing country. Now look at verse 13. And Israel said to Joseph, Israel, not Jacob, Israel. There's a little clue here from the Holy Spirit. This is not just family story. It's not just something from their household. This has to do with the people of God. What's happening here has to do with the history of God's people. The history of the Holy Seed, which leads to the Christ. That's what's at stake here. Israel says, go see how your brothers are doing. Joseph, to his credit, says, here I am. He's ready to obey. He doesn't say, Dad, I'm kind of scared that they're going to make fun of me or they're going to they're going to tease me or they're not going to receive me well. He just listens to his dad. Neither dad nor Joseph are, have any clue that anything is possibly dangerous about this decision. And then the father, Jacob, says, verse 14, go and see if it is well. And the Hebrew word behind well is the word shalom again. Go and see if it is shalom with your brothers. Go and see if it is well, if there is peace, if everything's going good. Well, we know that there's going to be no peace in what he's going to walk into. And there off he goes, three days walk, 10 hours a day, three long days of walking to get up to Shechem. It's kind of like walking from here to Panoka. It's about the same amount of hours of walking, about 30 hours of walking. And then he gets there, but they're not there. He's wandering around in the fields like a lost sheep about to be sacrificed, which he, he actually is. And he's, he meets this man. The man says, what are you, who are you seeking? He says, I'm seeking my brothers. Look at verse 16 there. I'm seeking my brothers. And then look at the end of verse 17. He, he went after his brothers. There's a massive disconnect here between Joseph's heart, and he's seeing, I'm going to see my brothers. This is a good thing. These are family. They're the people you should be safest with. But he's going to be received as something much less than a brother. He's going to be received as an enemy. So the Holy Spirit's calling our attention to how unnatural it is what's going to happen next. And so he's going to go more north now 
to Dothan, and Dothan would be like walking from Panoka to Lacombe. So it's about seven, seven or eight hours. If he left early in the morning, which he would have, he would get there in the early or the mid-afternoon. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near, they've made up their mind of what to do. Now, if they're in Dothan, you can see it on, on, on Google Maps still today, or Google Street View, you have kind of a, a, a hill on the one side and then a pretty big plain, and he would be walking, they would be pasturing the flock on, on this side on the hills. He would be walking across the plain. They would see him coming. Maybe about half an hour, they would see him coming. Now, why would they see him coming? Why would they know that it's him? Well, he's wearing, we know that from a future verse here, he's wearing the robe, that robe which enrages them, that robe which says, I'm special. I'm the one that gets my dad's blessing. I'm the one that's going to be in charge. I'm the one you're going to bow down to. He's wearing the robe. What is he thinking? He's wearing the robe. They see it from a distance, and it inflames them to murderous hatred. And so they conspire to kill him. Now, in this last part of Genesis, in many ways, Joseph is a Christ figure. He's a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own people, and his own people murdered him. They cried out for his blood. And we have a little picture of that right here in our text, as Joseph's brothers are baying for his blood. Here comes this dreamer. And when we would say that, we're thinking of someone who has his head in the clouds, right? Oh, you're, you're a dreamer. You're not realistic. You're, you're, you're always thinking about unrealistic things. That's what we would mean when we say, here comes this dreamer. But that's not what it means here. A dreamer at that time is a person that receives revelation from God. It's like saying, oh, here comes the preacher. Here comes the minister of the word. Here comes the prophet, the one who's always talking about what God says. These people, they're not just angry at Joseph. They're angry at God. They're not just despising Joseph, their brother. They're despising their God. These are the men who are the foundation of the Old Testament church. Let us kill him. Reminds us of Cain and Abel. What we have here is the, that Genesis 3 verse 15 conflict and hatred between the seed of the servant and the seed of the, the woman. That conflict is driving itself and invading the people of God, the people of the covenant and the holy seed. They want to kill. They want to destroy. And we'll throw them into one of these pits. Now, in that, in that area, would have cisterns that are dug out, and they, they're designed to capture the runoff water because water is precious in that area of the world. It's designed to capture the, the runoff water. And, and if they're designed well, they can capture water, which can water thousands and thousands of sheep for the entire dry season. So they throw them into one of these systems, which right now happens to be dry. And then they say, well, we'll say a fierce animal killed him. They want to murder and of course, when you commit one sin, it leads to another. Deep calls to deep. Sin always leads to more sin. If you do something wrong, then you often have to lie about it. And then that just leads to more and more and more sins. That's what happens here. 
Every time we sin, we do that, don't we? Every time we sin, we do what the brothers are doing here. They say, let us see what will become of his dreams. See that in verse 20? Let us see what will become of his dreams. Let's see what will become of the revelation of God. Let's see what will come of the word of God. That's what we do when we sin. When we, with a high hand, we rebel against God. We choose what is wrong. We know it's wrong. And we're basically saying to God, well, let's see what happens when I don't believe you. Let's see what happens when I live totally divergent from what you tell me to do and how you tell me to live. Let's see if anything comes of it. We have that same attitude very much in our old natures and our old and our own sinful hearts. And then verse 21, Reuben hears of it. Now Reuben... He's not a godly man. He's slept with his, one of his father's wives. That's a, that's a great shame and a natural thing to do. But one thing he is not is a blood, a shedder of blood. He, he was not the leader there in Shechem. It was the, number two, number three. It was Simeon and Levi. They were the, the bloodthirsty ones. Reuben wasn't involved there. He seems to be a, a gentler man and a man who doesn't in, like violence. And he certainly once again displays that character. He's got lots of sins, of course, but this is one thing that speaks well of him. And he had, uh, had a relationship with Bilhah, who was the servant of Rachel. So he's kind of connected to the Rachel part of the family. And perhaps he, because of that connection with her and because she is now, of course, the adoptive mother of Joseph, perhaps there's some sympathy there in him that others don't have. We don't know, but it is a possibility from the situation that the Scripture gives us. He says, don't kill, throw him in there so we can restore him. He wanted to restore him to his father. That's his, his secret plan. Now, Reuben is the head of the family. And when dad's far away, Reuben is kind of like the patriarch. His word should be law, especially in that time. The head of the family, the oldest son, he should be obeyed as if dad was speaking. And even though he has this authority, he doesn't use it. He doesn't dare to directly oppose this murderous, wicked, ungodly plan. And that shows you what a rough and rebellious bunch the 12 patriarchs are. Reuben doesn't dare to go head to head with them. He should have. He should have said, there's no way. I stand with my brother. Death first. I will protect my brother. What you're doing is wrong, and God will judge you for it. He doesn't do that. He's too scared. And so, verse 23, they strip him of his robe when he came. Now, the, the violence is clear in the quickness of the, the, the verbs here. Verse 23, verse 24, stripped him of his robe, took him, and they threw him into a pit. Of course, they stripped him of his robe, because that's the, the sign of everything that they hate about him. Tear it off him. It's a sign of his dreams. It's a sign of his status. It's, it's the word of God has said that he will be the sovereign in the family, and others will bow to him. And the, the coat is like a sacramental sign which says, yes, that's going to happen. And so they despise both the word and the sign. They despise God's election of Joseph, and they hate him instead of loving him. They hate him instead of receiving God's word about him. So we see here the the men who are the foundation of the Old Testament church acting like the world, hating 
the word of God and the signs of the word of God. Now they threw him into the pit. There was no water, which is good because it means he doesn't drown, but it's also bad because it means that he's going to die a slow, agonizing death of dehydration. And they sit down, verse 25, to eat. Now think about that. You've just almost murdered your brother. Then you've consigned him to a pit to maybe murder him later or maybe just leave him to die. And then you sit down and have a, have a meal. What kind of a monster can do that? Is there no conscience here? But there's more to it here. This is a mockery, a mockery of Satan. What, what does God's people do throughout the Old Testament? They, they, they bring a sacrifice. There's a killing of a sacrificial sacrifice. And after that, there's a fellowship meal to celebrate the forgiveness of sins. These guys are doing the opposite. They're sacrificing their own brother. Then they have a meal to celebrate murder and treachery and hatred. It's like having a satanic rite in the, in the front of the church here. It's, it's unthinkable. What, what, what is happening here? It's so obviously wrong, and yet they're doing it. They have that meal. They sit down, and they look up, and, and you can see way across the plain. So they see these traders coming along, Ishmaelites, Midianites. Now, Ishmael, of course, is the son of Abram. Midian is another son of Abram through Keturah, and it seems that these two peoples kind of, because they were half-brothers, they kind of mixed together, and they had become a prosperous merchant type of people that were trading all kinds of goods back and forth throughout the, the ancient world. These are distant relatives, because as Joseph is, so these people are descendants of Abram. They're distant relatives, and yet they're quite happy to take him and to buy him as a slave. Then look at verse 26. And, and I've, as I've mentioned, as we go through these chapters, look at Judah. Pay close attention to Judah. Look at verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother Concilius' blood? What profit is it? He means that. What do we get out of it? If we just kill him, we don't come out ahead. If we sell him, we get some money. So, his greed accidentally saves Joseph from death. It's not because he's standing up for Joseph, but because of his greed. He wants some money out of the deal. And he's willing to sell his own brother into slavery. This is, this is stunning. Judah is the Christ bearer. From his loins will come the descendants, which will eventually come the birth of the Savior of the world. And here, Judah, as part of that holy line, commits an act of greed and treachery against his own brother. He's an anti-Christ in this section of the Scripture, totally against the work of Christ. And yet, as they sell Joseph for 20 shekels, which was the going price for a slave back then, and yet... What is happening is that Judah accidentally, even in his sin, is helping the plan of God to go forward. Way back in Genesis 15, verse 13, if you just flip back to that, Genesis 15, verse 13, when God confirmed his covenant with Abram as he went through those chopped up pieces of animals, in 15, 13, the Lord said to him at that time, know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He doesn't mention Egypt, but part of the affliction of those 400 years is certainly in Egypt. That's where the affliction grew to its greatest heights. And so even though Judah is sinning, God turns that sin and uses it to implement and execute his eternal plans. And then in verse 29, Reuben secretly goes back to the pit when the brothers aren't around. He looks in. There's nothing there. He didn't directly oppose sin. He thought he could work around it secretly. He didn't take leadership. And this is the result. Now it's too late. It cannot be undone. He's been sold. He's gone. And so in verse 31, they, they slaughter a goat and they send their brother's clothes back to dad. They send it. And because the verb used is sent in verse 32, it appears that they sent it by servants. I mean, they got to walk for four days to get back home. And carrying their blood goat with them is a bit much. So they send it through the hands of servants so that they don't have to see their dad's face when he first sees the sign of their treachery. They send it to dad. Now, now what is happening here? There's a, there's a slaughtered goat, and there's the clothes of their brother. Does that remind you of something? Does that remind you of back when Jacob was deceiving his father Isaac? Jacob went into his father's presence with a slaughtered goat and with his brother's clothes. And now Jacob is reaping what he has sown. Jacob's getting back what he has given. Jacob is experiencing the type of deception that with which he deceived his father. Now his sons are deceiving him with a slaughtered goat and with their brother's clothes. He gets it back with interest. Sin, says the, the scripture says this, your sin will find you out. Your sin will come back. It will find you. You cannot sin without consequences. Yes, Jesus died for our sins and we're forgiven, but when we plant the seed of sin, it will come back and we will face it at the most unexpected moments. And that's why we ought not to be planting sin at all. We ought to, we ought to be sowing holiness and reaping the fruit of righteousness. So verse 29, Reuben returned to the pit. He went back to his brothers. He was secret about it. And when when Jacob gets the, 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 the bloody clothes, verse 33, he jumps to a conclusion. Obviously, my son's being killed by, by animals, and he begins to grieve. Now, look at his grieving in verse 34. It is a grieving which is over the top. He tears his garments, puts on sackcloth, mourned for his son for many days. There were, there were rigid uh, protocols for how you mourn people back in those days and in that place. There were so many days for a child, so many days for a spouse, so many days for a king or a ruler. Jacob throws all of those protocols out of the, door, out of the window and he mourns and mourns and mourns and mourns. And then he says... I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I shall, verse 35, I, I shall go down to Sheol mourning. I'm never going to stop this funeral. For the rest of my days, I will give myself over to immoderate, inordinate grief. Why? Because I wanted Rachel as my wife. 
I wanted the first son of Rachel to be the son of the promise. That hasn't happened, and now I give up, and I'm going to weep for the rest of my life. So what do we see here in our father Jacob? No submission to the will of God. Brothers and sisters, there are hard providences that come upon us, very hard providences. But one thing we need to do as we mourn them and as we grieve the pain and the loss of the hard providences of God in our lives, we, we got to come to the point where we give it to the Lord and say, Lord, this is from your hand. Nothing happens by chance. Everything comes to me from your fatherly hand, and I submit to your will. Oh, God, it's hard, and it hurts, and I have so many questions And I'm frightened of what the future looks like, but I rest in your sovereign, perfect, good will. So Jacob has forgotten this. He's forgotten the lesson of Penuel that when you are overcome by God in your weakness, that is when you have the victory. Now, all his sons and daughters rise up to comfort him. Now, now, look at this scene here. All of his sons and daughters rise up to comfort him. We have 10 men. Now, these guys are in their late teens and early 20s, maybe between 15 and 25, let's say, at this time. We have 10 of these guys. They know where Joseph is. They know that Joseph is alive. All they have to say is, Dad, you know, we did a really stupid thing, Dad. Let's send a bunch of servants. Let's get some camels and some donkeys. Let's go to Egypt and let's ransom our brother. Let's pay the price. Find out where he's a slave. Ransom him. Bring him back. We don't want to see you weeping, Dad. We don't want to see you grieving. They don't do that. They play along. You know how long it is from this event to when Jacob sees his son again? It's 22 years. 22 years that our fathers in the faith tortured their father with thinking that his son was dead. Now, that is a boss level of cruelty and wickedness. That's a terrible thing. And there, at the end of the chapter, he comes into the house of the officer of Pharaoh. He's sold into Egypt, and Egypt in the Scriptures represents the place of affliction and suffering and slavery. That's where the one who has been promised by God's word to have sovereignty and glory, he's been cast into slavery and humiliation. What does that sound like? This is the way of the cross, brothers and sisters. This is the path of the cross. He is put in the house of the captain of the guard, kind of like the chief of police of Egypt or the chief of the bodyguards, The word guard here literally means butcher or executioner. These are the guys that would deal with the people that needed to be dealt with. These are the guys that would get rid of anybody that was a problem to the Pharaoh. These were the most powerful and bloodthirsty people in the kingdom. But at the same time, this man has intimate access to the highest power. He's always in the presence of the Pharaoh. Jacob isn't thrown into some distant part of the land on some farm somewhere. Jacob, uh, sorry, Joseph, Joseph is in the orbit of the palace and the highest power in Egypt. And God is setting things up here right away. 
God is setting things up for what's going to happen. And he does that so often, doesn't he? You think of Daniel, taken away as a kidnapped, as a slave from, from the, the promised land. He's taken into exile, and he's put in a place where even though he's a slave or he's a, he's a kidnapped person, he gets to have incredible influence on the highest power in the empire. Think of Paul in Rome when he's in prison. And, and, and through his imprisonment in Rome, he has access to the Praetorian Guard and, and those who are closest to the emperor. And the gospel spreads to the most powerful uh, levels of the Roman Empire because Paul is in chains. God often does this. He often places his servants in great suffering and great humiliation to bring about great influence on great power with great results. And we can see it in a smaller way in our own lives. Sometimes God throws us into a hospital somewhere. And we certainly don't enjoy it, do we? But then at the same time, through our testimony as we suffer there in that hospital, God is speaking to the hearts of the nurses and the doctors, the other patients, and they are in the presence of someone in whom resides the spirit of the living God. Maybe they've never talked to a Christian before, and there they are now in your life and you in theirs. God is always doing something, also in suffering. We may be imprisoned, we may be enslaved, we may be restricted, we may be bound, but the, the word of God is not bound. And the kingdom of God and of his Christ cannot be stopped. So that's the chapter. What do we learn from it as we look at this chapter? Brothers and sisters, this is the foundations of the Old Testament church. And it is an absolute mess. It's a broken family. And yet this is the chosen people. These 12 foundational leaders of the Old Testament church are at each other's throats with hatred and violence and murder and treachery, kidnapping, destroying the life of one of their own brothers. They're living a life of lies and deceit. They keep it up for 22 years. And Father Jacob has given up. He's turned in on himself. He's in perpetual mourning. He's neglecting his duties to the living because he's got his mind fixated on who the person he thinks is dead. He's not being a father and a grandfather and instructing his children in the way of the Lord. He's a broken man with a broken family. There are broken hopes and broken dreams. And it looks like everything is spinning out of control in terms of that line that ought to lead to the coming Christ. It looks like the whole plan of God is, is just gone off the rails and it's going to be very, very difficult to see how it can be fixed. If we look at chapter 37, brothers and sisters, there's not a lot here. In fact, there's nothing here for God to work with. Nothing. There's nothing he can build on. And yet, he does. Despite sin, through sin, God works anyway, preparing salvation. All of this brokenness, it's not just external. Much of it is self-inflicted. But God uses it to bring the world closer to the Christ. You know, it's, the Holy Spirit does not spare us here. He makes it so clear. There's Esau on the one side of our chapter, just be, behind us, rich and successful and entering into his possession, kings coming from him and a great number of people. 
there in our chapter are the other sons of Abraham. There's the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. They're prosperous, they're powerful, they're successful. And in between those two, here's the children of Israel in chapter 37. They're a mess, an absolute mess. They're poor, they're insignificant. They're, they're sheep herders who can't even get along with each other. They can't even cooperate. You know, sometimes, so often, brothers and sisters, the world puts the church to shame. That's what's happening here. And yet from this unworthy mess of brokenness, God will form a great nation. He will draw out our Old Testament church fathers back from the unbelief and sin to which they gave themselves over. He will preserve them from falling away like Ishmael and Esau. He will work on them through suffering. He will hammer on them. He will sculpt them with suffering in the coming chapters. And out of all this, he will bring salvation, first through Joseph and then later on through Christ. Now, as we deal with the brokenness of the world in which we live, there's a world groaning with the burden of the destruction of human sin. And God's providential burdens weigh down on us and they they're heavy. They, they break us. They're more than we can bear so often. We look at the state of the world. We look at the, the state of our country. We look at our, our health, which is, which is declining, or terrible health concerns which afflict us. Our bodies breaking down. Our minds breaking down because of old age. We, we, we struggle with mental illness and depression. We have the fear of death. We fear for our loved ones as they turn away from the Lord. We have children taken from us. Way too early, sometimes even in the womb, we have other children straying from the word of life and all this brokenness weighs on us. And then on top of that, there's the brokenness of our own sin, our own inadequacy. It weighs on us. And then there's conflict amongst brothers by blood and brothers in the spirit. Our relationships are not always healthy, brothers and sisters. We, we bicker and we fight and we complain to and about one another. What is the lesson in this chapter? The lesson is this, that God is doing something, that God has a plan, and that his plan will succeed, and that his way is the way of the cross. The way to glory is the way through suffering. It is the way of the Christ. And we're about to sing Psalm 102, the last stanzas. God has tried me in his rigor. He broke my strength and vigor. That's where he wants us to be, brothers and sisters, broken. Where we just see before us a picture of our total unworthiness. That's where he wants us to be. And that's where we need to be, without resources, without recourse, no hope in ourselves. All is lost. All we are is a big bunch of fallen sinners with petty conflicts and lack of love and backsliding and mistakes and the stubborn refusal to grow in grace and eyes which are way too easily distracted with the offerings of the world. And when we see what we are in ourselves, then all we can do is look to God, the God who does miracles, the God who loves the unlovable, the God who takes a broken, dysfunctional family and transforms it into a chosen people, who takes a bunch of broken, bickering, weak faith sinners like us and makes it into a holy church chosen unto everlasting life.
Nothing that we have can offer us hope to bring about the kingdom of God. Nothing in this world can we grab onto that can make us truly happy and successful. But we can hold onto God. We can hold onto God's promises in Christ. Even the very creation around us falls apart. Nations fall, kingdoms collapse, civilizations crumble. The very physical earth and universe that we live in will wear out like a garment, will fall apart. But through it all, through all the brokenness, Christ is coming. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will change out this old, dying, weary, sin-filled world for a renewed heavens and earth. That's the whole record of Scripture, brothers and sisters. That's who who he is. That's what he does. He brings life out of death. He overcomes sin by the power of his grace. Everything is ordained to bring us to Christ, to bring us to salvation. Everything is ordained to bring us to those glorious words of Revelation chapter 21, which are going to end the sermon with Revelation 21. But the Spirit says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All of the brokenness will be totally erased. And we will have Christ forever. Amen.